Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Unpoly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, the Ontario government has suggested it will not be renewing our contract with Quebec to purchase hydroelectricity. A Liberal MPP who's a medical doctor is describing the crisis in our hospitals as historic. And the municipal election is October 24th, so we're bringing you week three of our coverage around municipal politics and platforms to look out for. This week, one of the biggest issues in the province today, housing. Public opinion finally seems to be reaching a consensus. Increasing housing stock is necessary to mitigate the affordability crisis. But what housing stock do we mean exactly? And what do we need to do to get there? An economist and an urban planner will let us know. It's Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. So let's get to it. Howdy again, partner. I'm in Northern Ontario once again, spending one last weekend in the scrumtralescent beauty of north of the French River. No, that is not a real word. Will Ferrell made up that word, scrumtralescent. But it does just sound like it captures the essence of how I feel being in the north today. Where, where do we find you on this fine day? Uh, I am uh, still in Toronto, uh, just recording from my home in the East End. I, I couldn't claim to be scrumtralescent, uh, and not just because <laughs> I don't know what that word could possibly mean, but I'm doing good. Come on, it's so on- onomatopoetic. I mean, what does scrumtralescent sound like? It sounds like uh, scrumptious and evanescent had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, before we get any further into this, let's do another listener shout out off the top here. Someone named Eric, who works in Sarnia Lampton MPP Bob Bailey's constituency office, wrote the following. Just want to send you a quick comment on the new format of the podcast. I'm enjoying it. I like the idea of taking the quotes of the week and giving them some more context rather than having to summarize in a few sentences why the quote was chosen. I'm also liking the deeper dive on specific issues related to the upcoming municipal elections. Thanks, Eric. Yes, while we appreciate the compliments, we also very much appreciate constructive criticism, and Eric has some of that too. He goes on to offer a critique about some missing context in his view from our education unions discussion last week, and he says the following, Although much of the negotiations are about money, I think the outlier this time around is related to the fact that the students have missed so much time in the classroom over the past two and a half years. It's not just the government that doesn't want to strike, it's the students and the parents too. Okay, Eric, there we go. We got you both the plus and the minus. You're on the record. JMM, any feedback you want to give Eric? Yeah, I think he's correct that, uh, you know, you can't separate the current uh, labor negotiations uh, from the pandemic context. Um, the, The difference, of course, being that like the teachers unions may or may not end up being responsible for a strike, but it was the government that was responsible for the shutdowns. There you go. Eric, once again, thanks for writing. Others, we welcome your comments as well. And now, on with the podcast. Here comes issue one. Their interest is in exporting power. Our interest is importing non-emitting power. Our our interests are complementary. If we want to lock down a commitment from Quebec, then why are we not negotiating now? I mean, if the province is saying there'll be problems years from now, well, negotiate now, get in, be the customer who gets the 
the service that we need. That was interim NDP leader and energy and climate change critic Peter Tabbins commenting on news broken from Radio Canada. They reported last week that Ontario will not be renewing their agreement with Quebec to buy electricity. Uh, we reached out to Energy Minister Todd Smith's office and they sent us a statement saying that the 2015 Hydro-Quebec Capacity Sharing Agreement is active and continues until the IESO executes its option to receive 500 megawatts of capacity anytime before 2030. The IESO so does not expect to exercise this option until at least 2026 or 2027. So that's obviously a very um, jargony statement. Yeah, I need I need somebody to put that in English, please. Yeah, exactly. Uh, who knew that electricity policy was complicated? <laughs> There's an agreement or a, a memorandum of understanding between the provinces of Ontario and Quebec, but functionally, this agreement is between the ISO, which is the energy regulator here in Ontario, and uh, Hydro-Quebec, uh, which is the, the utility in Quebec that uh, Ontario always, uh, not always, but but regularly buys electricity from. Uh, so this agreement, uh, there's a, a history to it. Um, well, Steve, I don't know, you want to give the background on the agreement? Yeah, sure. I mean, this this goes back to Kathleen Wynne's days when she was the Premier of Ontario, and it was a seven-year agreement that she and her government signed, expiring at the end of next year. And the whole idea, of course, is to reduce Ontario's greenhouse gas emissions by buying 2.3 terawatt hours, they're called, terawatt hours of electricity from Quebec annually. That's about 7% of Hydro-Quebec's average annual exports. So not a huge amount, but not an insignificant amount either. And just for those of you who are not experts in acronyms like IESO and that <laughs> other stuff, a terawatt hour is a million megawatt hours. So that's a lot. A typical Canadian home uses seven megawatt hours a year. So we're talking a million megawatt hours, okay? Do the fast math here. And we're talking about basically enough electricity to power 300,000-ish homes every year. So it sounds like Peter Tabbins is a bit worried that we are losing out on what is potentially a major power source that we are going to need in the future, which raises the question, where does that leave the 300,000 or so households that will be depending on presumably that or other f sources of electricity in the future. Well, we've talked before recently on the podcast about some of the other measures that the government is uh, taking to uh, get more electricity capacity built in the system. We talked about Pickering, we've talked about natural gas. Uh, in this case, the province says, or rather I should say, Minister Smith's office uh, did go on to say, as Ontario moves to competitive procurements to drive value for ratepayers and away from sole source contracts, that's a little dig at the Liberals there, uh, Ontario and Quebec have become active trading partners outside of this 2015 agreement. Hydro-Quebec is a regular participant in Ontario's competitive electricity procurements. It goes on, but the important context here is that it's not like the government is like tearing down the power lines between Ontario and Quebec. Our our power grids will remain connected and Ontario will continue to be able to buy electricity from Quebec at when we need to. It will just be outside of this agreement. This agreement was a very specific thing, uh, a commitment uh, by Ontario to buy that power, a commitment by Quebec to sell it at a certain price. The government seems to believe that they will get a better deal in what they are ca calling a more competitive uh, process than they could have gotten from continuing this agreement. So this is a difference of opinion between the progressive conservative government and the NDP opposition, which believes we've had this kind of good for both parties, seven year long, trusted agreement in place, and we probably should go that route, say the NDP, 
as opposed to relying on sort of the spot market, you know, ad hoc procurements, that kind of thing. Uh, the leader of the Green Party, Mike Schreiner, weighed in as well, and he's also quoted by Radio Canada as saying that this is, in his view, the PC seemingly trying to make Ontarians more dependent on gas and increase our electricity bills. Now, we don't want to be more dependent on gas, obviously, because that's more polluting than the very pure hydroelectric power we imported or have import, been importing from Quebec. Do you think these shots are fair from Mike Schreiner? Well, certainly uh, it, it matches a criticism that Peter Tabbins uh, made when I was speaking with him uh, last week. This is a government that uh, is deeply committed to moving away from renewable power. You know, demolishing a wind farm in Prince Edward County, uh, trying to knock out another one uh, in eastern Ontario, Nation Rise, which they were unsuccessful at, cancelling a whole bunch of renewable energy projects, and now this. Uh, just as renewable energy is not something that they see as part of Ontario's future. So, you know, again, I'm just going to draw the distinction between the the specific terms of this agreement and the general ability to import power from Quebec. Uh, again, we will continue to be able to, to import power from Quebec. This specific agreement is really a unique thing. You know, a metaphor that I might offer to try and hopefully illuminate this is that, you know, we are going to a process where we will uh, pay for our electricity as we go, like being on a, a pay-as-you-go cell phone contract instead of uh, having a, a set monthly plan with uh, Bell or Rogers. It is a different way of doing things, uh, but it doesn't mean that we are going to stop buying electricity from Quebec. No, but let's go back to first principles here and ask the obvious question, which is, was this deal originally signed by the Kathleen Wynne Liberal government uh, all those years ago? Was it a good deal for Ontario to begin with? Certainly the Liberals were optimistic about it when they announced it. It is worth noting here that they did consider expanding the agreement in the years that followed. Um, but there was a concern uh, under the Liberal government, so I, I don't think this was just a ginned up uh, Tory talking point, let me put it that way. Uh, there was a concern that if they started uh, dramatically increasing uh, purchases of power from Hydro-Quebec, that for basically technical reasons, it wouldn't actually displace uh, the use of natural gas. It would displace Ontario's cleaner sources of power, such as nuclear and renewables. And that's not really, that doesn't help us with the problem we're trying to solve. Let's say one more thing about this. And, you know, besides the strict business case that both sides are trying to make uh, as it relates to this agreement, Premier Wynne she also liked this idea because she saw it as a nation-building exercise. And to that, we want to sort of go back to 1988, the free trade agreement that Canada and the United States signed. And the economic currents in the country since then have become much more north-south and much less east-west because of that trade agreement. And I think Premier Wynne wanted to show how the province of Ontario could be part of, you know, what she called a nation-building effort more east-west links, you know, Ontario-Quebec, as opposed to Ontario-New York or Quebec and Vermont, that kind of thing. So there was that nation-building angle in this as well. No, and I think that is uh, an important part of the story. And uh, I, I would add, though, that, you know, as we've now moved forward uh, just a bit less than a, d a decade, you now see really changing attitudes in both provincial capitals, right? Uh, François Legault is not hugely enamored with the idea of tying Quebec closer to uh, other provinces. Uh, and Doug Ford, you know, I, I don't think he's opposed to the idea of nation building, uh, but 
his government is really much more focused on uh, trying to keep the cost of electricity down. And uh, insofar as they see this as an obstacle to it, it, this was never going to be a tough choice for them. Yeah, it's a it's a point worth making that that liberal premier Kathleen Wynne made this deal with Quebec liberal premier Philippe Couillard. And we now have in Ontario and Quebec, two premiers of a much more conservative hue. So anyway, different strokes, I guess. Here comes issue number two now. The data reveals that for the month of August 2022, wait times, emergency department length of stay, time for an admitted patient to move to an inpatient bed, and ambulance offload times were the worst they have ever been when compared to every other August since 2008. This government loves to use the adjective historic. And for the first time, I actually think the word applies within the context of their historic failures in our healthcare system. Okay, that was rookie Liberal MPP Dr. Adil Shamji in his remarks about a new report from Ontario Health. That's a provincial agency basically responsible for planning so much of healthcare in the province today. And they found that the emergency department stays in this province increased by almost 16% in August of this year compared with August of last year. And the duration of the stay also increased by almost half. The length of stay for admitted patients has increased by 48%. Average number of people waiting for transfers from emergency to inpatient beds increased 53%. And ambulance offload times also increased by almost 41%. So that's, uh, I guess that sort of was a brown envelope from somewhere inside Ontario Health to the Liberal opposition MPP, and he had a news conference uh, basically, you know, blowing the thing open and putting some light on this. Uh, Ontario Health does report to Sylvia Jones, who's the PC member for Dufferin Caledon. She's the deputy premier and most importantly, of course, the minister of health. And so far, she's had little to say about this. Now, JMM, what explains these very much elevated numbers? Well, the short version is that we still have uh, quite a lot of COVID going around the system. And so that is uh, putting a strain on hospitals. Uh, and, you know, we have talked at length on this podcast about uh, the uh, labor shortages uh, in hospitals as well. Uh, nurses choosing not to continue working for what they think is, is too little pay. Uh, you know, even uh, during the summer, we've had issues with uh, people taking summer vacations, obviously uh, very well earned for many of these people. It will be their first vacation in two years or more. You know, it, it has all added uh, to the the difficulty of running the hospital system. And, and you know, we see that with things like uh, closures of emergency rooms. The question of whether it is historic or not, uh, I mean, I certainly can't remember a, a previous time where things were uh, this um, chaotic, for lack of a better word, uh, outside of the the winter flu season, which we are, you know, we're used to that idea of of things getting hairy a bit uh, in flu season. Now we have COVID season, <laughs> <laughs> which is twelve months a year apparently these days. All right, let's talk about another healthcare issue here, and there is another indication of healthcare problems: the case of four hundred thousand missed mammograms. The Ontario Medical Association released this data, and the opposition NDP are saying, here's another reason to repeal the 1% wage caps mandated by Bill 124. What, in your view, explains all these missed mammograms? 
you and I have spoken before about uh, the enormous uh, backlog in hospitals, uh, missed procedures, uh, but specifically there are missed diagnostic procedures uh, or, or uh, you know, procedures that people weren't able to get to when hospitals were closed repeatedly uh, during the pandemic. Well, mammograms are a diagnostic procedure, and uh, this is the kind of thing that uh, people have missed out on and that uh, we are apparently uh, still uh, having a great deal of difficulty uh, clearing that backlog. I, I, we've talked about you know the the billion dollar plus that the uh, province has invested to try and clear that backlog. The uh, financial accountability officer you know was a, an early uh, warning about this uh, problem and about how expensive and how long it was going to uh, be for the government to to clear that backlog, but. This is part of what that looks like. And what's the provincial government now got up its sleeve to improve this situation? Uh, well, you know, I, I just mentioned some of the, the, the large sums that we uh, have talked about before. But we did also learn last week that the College of Nurses of Ontario has set an annual record for certifying new nurses. Uh, and, you know, the year's not over yet. So, you know, there is progress happening, though I would not blame our listeners for thinking that things are not going great in the hospitals right now. For our third week of Civics Month, we zero in on housing. There's growing consensus that increasing housing stock will help push prices down. Old-fashioned supply and demand, right? The more supply, theoretically, the prices should go down. But what housing stock are we talking about? And is increasing supply the whole story? Let's break down what platforms might say if they really wanted to make housing more affordable. Joining us today are two guests, Cheryl Case, founder and principal urban planner at CP Planning. CP Planning is a nonprofit that looks to facilitate partnerships between public and private stakeholders to deliver housing through a human rights lens. She's also co-editor and co-author of House Divided, How the Missing Middle Can Solve Toronto's Affordability Crisis. We've also got Alex Hemingway here. He's a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He just came out with a report called Five Reasons Supply Matters to the Housing Crisis. And he joins us from Vancouver, which of course is another major city in the country that feels the housing crisis as acutely as Toronto. Vancouver also just had its municipal elections, so we'll find out what informed some of the vote there. Cheryl, let's get started. We hear this expression, the missing middle, all the time. What does it mean? So the missing middle refers to housing at the scale that would fit really well into uh, an everyday neighborhood. So that includes a laneway suite, a garden suite, a second story addition, that it's a secondary suite, all the way up to a four story low rise apartment. And what is the prevailing theory on why dealing with the missing middle would help bring house prices down? So dealing with the missing middle um, includes addressing the economic policies that have prevented affordable housing to be built, right? So um, looking at how can we enable affordable laneway houses, affordable second, third story, or even four story tall uh, low rise apartments. Uh, and so that would be about uh, addressing the systemic discrimination that has resulted in the exclusion of these housing types from these neighborhoods. Alex, briefly, can you walk us through the reasons you outlined in your piece for why more supply uh, of homes is so important to the housing crisis? Sure. And, you know, I'll just preface that by saying that, look, I, I mean, a lot of the research that I've done and, and the CCPA has done on housing is focused on the need for a public investment in affordable housing. And that's absolutely critical. Uh, and, you know, uh, 
In addition to that, we need to look at the housing system through uh, the various lenses. One of them is the overall supply issue. So when cities have a, a low vacancy rate, there's a scarcity of available rental homes. That works out very well for landlords, very poorly for uh, renters. Uh, rents tend to increase more quickly. Higher vacancy rates uh, correspond to times when rents increase more slowly or or even fall. One interesting way to, to see this dynamic at work is actually to look at what big real estate investors like uh, REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust, say uh, in their financial disclosures to investors. They fear uh, too much housing supply as a threat to their business model. And they say this over and over. And I, I document this in, in my recent research. And, you know, another element, you know, there, there are various pieces to the puzzle here, but just one more I'll mention as someone who's been in the rental market for a long time, when you have a situation where uh, there are sometimes dozens of people lined up for any rental that comes up, that really uh, puts uh, landlords in, in a position of power. So, you know, it, it's important that we strengthen the rights of tenants in law. That's another piece of addressing the housing crisis. But those rights are actually very difficult for tenants to enforce uh, effectively when they have no uh, realistic other place to go than than their current apartment. So, you know, it's, it's an all of the above approach. The CCPA is obviously a, a progressive group. Did you think that people on the left in particular needed to hear the message about supply? I, I frankly, I, I did, you know, and I think that there, there are many on the left who, who do get that point, uh, but it's an ongoing debate. It's a live debate on the on the left. And I, and I wanted to show that, you know, it, even when you look through the lens of, of someone who's concerned with uh, bringing online uh, not for profit housing, public housing, supply does matter. I, I kind of want to offer permission uh, um, for uh, folks on the left, in a sense, to to say, all of the above. Yes, uh, renter protections. Yes, public housing and nonprofit housing. And yes, dealing with the shortage that we can see in front of our eyes when we have to line up uh, uh, to apply for one single uh, uh, rental vacancy. Uh, and, you know, the, the other piece of the puzzle here is, look, we're, we're in a climate crisis. And uh, if we don't start uh, building housing in our central cities, where there's a huge amount of pent up demand, we're going to pay the consequences of that. Cheryl, I think it's clear that all levels of government have a role to play uh, regarding housing. But wondering, you know, you're a practitioner here. Uh, can you explain what the specific tools that uh, city halls uh, around the province uh, might be able to uh, have at their disposal to, to improve housing affordability? Sure. So um, at City Hall, they have a variety of, of tools. So um, in, uh, you know, in Ontario, we have something called inclusionary zoning that's supposed to be coming online sometime in the near or distant future. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's that. Um, and there are also other ways, right? So there are uh, ways that you can incentivize affordable housing through the development approvals process. So, you know, if you developer must approve a certain height, then they'll get a bonus um, on their permissions if they were to agree to build affordable housing. Uh, cities also are able to provide direct subsidies for affordable housing. So if you agree, for example, to provide affordable housing for a minimum of 15 years, um, you would be able to receive a loan of a forgivable loan of up to $50,000 uh, in Toronto. And there's a very similar program also in Peel region. And I'm sure there are also programs across Canada. In addition to these things uh, regarding uh, subsidizing the housing, there are also um, other ways that um, cities can increase the 
development of affordable housing. So that includes uh, prioritizing the development of affordable housing. So, you know, there are a lot of different development applications that are going through and being submitted uh, to city council. And so where there is affordable units included, that those units could be uh, prioritized to move through quickly because every day uh, costs the developer, right? So if you can uh, reduce those costs, those can be passed, those savings will be passed on to the unit and therefore to the tenant. Um, and another really important part that cities can play a role on, uh, and they're, I'm beginning to see a little bit of movement here, is um, addressing the labor shortage. So when we look at housing supply, uh, you think really consider who is building that housing. Um, and there's a huge shortage of people um, who are skilled or even to say welcome to be a part of the development of housing. Um, and so the, the lack of people in the housing development sector uh, in terms of labor is massively increasing the cost of the construction of housing and therefore increasing the overall cost of housing. So cities can be involved in programs to get more racialized people, more women into the trades, right? Uh, right now, racialized people and women are oftentimes pushed out when they find space. Um, and also they're not really welcomed to explore it as an opportunity in the first place. So this is a great space for the cities to be involved in uh, accelerating affordable housing development. You mentioned inclusionary zoning, and I'll just give our listeners a bit of the background there very quickly. Uh, the city of Toronto has adopted an inclusionary zoning policy, but it needs to get uh, final approval from the province. Uh, it has been sitting on the minister's desk for some time, and uh, some city councillors have been pretty vocal about their criticism that the, the, the government is not moving uh, as quickly on this uh, as they would like. Well, we're less than a week away from election day, so I really want to find out from the two of you, as people spend the next few days considering how they're going to mark their ballots, what should they be looking for? If a candidate's running for office right now, Cheryl, start us off. If a candidate's running for office, what do you want to see in their platforms that would suggest, yeah, I'm going to vote for you? Yeah, I'd say look out for the candidate who um, is really prioritizing like a nonprofit housing development. Um, you know, you're, we're seeing rents going up in the private sector. They're not going up in the nonprofit sector, right? Nonprofit housing, people are living in co-ops, they're protected from the volatility of the market. Um, and also through the nonprofit sector is where you get that community that can collaborate together to create long-standing solutions in housing. Alex, how about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, agree with that and, and, and build to just suggest a trifecta of things to look for. One is on the zoning front that we talked about before, and I'm going to uh, amend that to include what Cheryl mentioned. First of all, we need to end single-family zoning altogether. I think, you know, and as I say, it's exciting to see that on the table out west here. And you can combine that by allowing density uh, bonuses for nonprofit and public housing specifically. And we've actually seen that proposed. So you can kind of do both at the same time, allow, for example, uh, six-story rentals across the board and allow additional density on top of that for nonprofit developers to ensure that they can uh, compete and access that, that land. Uh, so important. Another is to ask uh, municipal uh, governments to get directly involved in, in building affordable housing themselves. They can do that. And one thing that's often missed in that discussion of public housing is that, you know, it, it may sound expensive to people, but in fact, uh, building housing on a not-for-profit basis, of course, creates a stream of rental income over the life of a project. So it's actually much less expensive than it sounds for the public sector to get involved uh, in, in building housing. You know, it's a very parallel model to a, a private sector rental developer. Of course, they're counting on that income coming in over time. And the final point I make 
I'll make is that a renter protections really need to be built into all of this. One interesting proposal uh, I, I've seen out here uh, in, in Vancouver uh, and on the table from multiple parties is to allow uh, renters uh, to return to new buildings at their existing rent. And in fact, you can make, uh, when there's a redevelopment, you can make the economics of that work by allowing enough uh, a density to make the, the numbers pencil. Final thing I'll add is in terms of protecting renters, Ending that exclusionary zoning is very important because the way we do things today by blocking apartments on most of the land, we're steering development towards the minority of areas where apartments currently exist. And that's the kind of thing that leads to displacement uh, uh, and demoviction from existing affordable housing. Well, I know you two live in two of the biggest cities in the country, but we also have listeners who are from uh, less populated and more rural parts of uh, the province of Ontario. So I do want to just finally get each of you on the record on whether what we've been talking about today goes for smaller communities as well, or are there different, maybe special considerations that uh, smaller or more rural municipalities have to take in mind when it comes to mitigating rising costs? Cheryl, go ahead. So I've worked in Peel. I've engaged uh, in York. I've also engaged in Hamilton and Ottawa to see what's going on there and to speak with folks in those communities. And, and it's just the institutional structure uh, and culture of these organizations and how they were set up. Um, and it's really hard for them to transition to a more engaged um, and equitable process, right? Um, one of my partners, a um, municipality um, in the GTA, um, it's a, I think it would consider it like, I think it's like top 10 city in, in Canada, um, you know, they uh, are a partner with, with CP planning on a project to engage racialized uh, renters in discussing um, their interests in terms of affordable housing. You know, they, they're happy to partner, however, they don't have the internal structures in place to that engagement themselves. So they recognize the need and value of, of better engaging marginalized people, but internally they just don't have that capacity or um, in that internal culture and structure to do that. You know, I grew up in, in northern BC in a smaller city, Prince George. Uh, and, you know, that is different from your uh, sort of magnet cities like uh, Vancouver, Toronto, other big cities in North America as well, San Francisco, New York, uh, where you have this huge amount of uh, pent up demand, extremely high prices. Uh, uh, the dynamics can be different. It depends on uh, the economic makeup of those cities and what's going to sustain uh, demand in those places for the long term. I think Vancouver is likely to be a climate haven in, in years to come. I don't see the, the demand to live here uh, 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 drying up anytime soon. Whereas, uh, you know, uh, the markets can be much more volatile in, in smaller centers. Having said that, we have, of course, seen a run up in prices uh, in most places across the country, including those smaller cities. Uh, uh, but you know, in, in some cases that can be attributed more to, to, to things like uh, extremely low interest rates that we saw during the pandemic. So it'll actually be uh, interesting and, and in some ways uh, uh, worrying to see uh, you know, what happens and, and what kind of differentiation there is uh, between bigger and smaller centers as the housing market shifts with uh, interest rate rates rising. Having said that, one commonality, and, and this is the last point I'll make, is that in just about every center uh, in, in the country, uh, there is a lack of adequate uh, investment in dedicated affordable housing from the public sector. Just about everywhere needs that. And we've had uh, two decades, two lost decades of inadequate investment in that area. So that, that needs to be done uh, all across the country. Gotcha. 
That's Cheryl Case, founder and principal urban planner for CP Planning, and Alex Hemingway, senior economist from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. We're grateful to both of you for spending so much time with us tonight on the On Poly podcast. Thank you. And that is the On Poly podcast for Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. And if you'll indulge me for a little bit here, this is somewhat of a red letter date in Ontario political history. It was on October 18th in 1982, 40 years ago, that Ontario Premier John Robarts was lost to suicide, highlighting the fact that he had a very successful premiership from 1961 to 71, but a personal life punctuated by awful tragedies. There was his own suicide, his 21-year-old son was lost to suicide, his first wife basically drank herself to death, she was lost to alcoholism, and his daughter died of cancer in her 50s. I wrote a book about Mr. Robarts about 15 years ago called Public Triumph, Private Tragedy, the double life of John P. Robarts. And, um, well, every year on this date, I go down to the St. James Cemetery at Parliament and Bloor in downtown Toronto to spend some time remembering his contributions to Ontario and to Canada, and they are many. And give me another 30 seconds here just to go through some of them. We got our first nuclear power plants in Pickering, courtesy of the Robarts government. They made that decision. Go Transit came in under John Robarts. Ontario's first anti-pollution laws enhanced civil rights legislation, a major national unity effort called the Confederation of Tomorrow Conference. If you go down to the TD Center where they held it in, uh, when was that? November of 1967, you can still see the plaque on the wall there showing this is where it happened. They balanced the budgets every year during the Robarts era, and they created five new universities, the whole college system, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, and of course, can I express my bias here? My favorite... TVO. Anyway, rest in peace, John Robarts, who died October 18th, 1982, at the age of 65. Uh, And I'd like to give our listeners a heads up. We will be back in your feeds next Wednesday. Uh, We are going to give ourselves some time to make sense of the results of the municipal elections uh, so that we can say something uh, hopefully insightful for all of you. The municipal elections are, of course, next Monday. So uh, please do go vote and uh, then spare a thought for... uh, all the reporters covering this who are going to have to try and make sense of this late in the evening. In the meantime, our newsletter will still reach your inbox next Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. And any feedback that you've got, we're happy to hear it. Good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb, and our managing editor is Shahriar Tajvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Until next time, when we know what our city halls will now look like. Amen to that. Amen to that.